Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Antak. Welcome to Top Shelf at Merrick Library. I am your host, Carol Antak, and I thank you all for joining me. Listeners, hold on to your hat because today's book, They're Going to Love You, by today's guest, Meg Howery, is a New Yorker Magazine Best Book of 2022, a December 2022 Bellatrist Book Club pick, a New York Times Best Book of the Month for November, and then Book Riot named They're Going to Love You, one of their 10 Best Historical Fictions of 2022. That list goes on and on. Today's guest, Meg Howery, is a former professional ballet dancer and actor and is the author of the novels The Wanderers, the Cranes Dance, and Blindsight. She is also the co-author, writing under the pen name, Magnus Flight, of the New York Times bestseller, City of Dark Magic and City of Lost Dreams. Her nonfiction has appeared in Vogue and the Los Angeles Review of Books. So without further ado, Meg Howery, thank you so very much for joining me and the listeners of Merrick Library's Top Shelf Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted. I am such a fan of The Wanderers, such a fan of that book. I have more stickies in that book than I can even tell <laughs> you about. And early in 2022, author Julia Claiborne Johnson, a prior top shelf guest, and, you know, I've been in touch with her. And it came up in conversation about The Wanderers. And she said, oh, my gosh, Meg Howry has a new book on the way. And I'm not going to lie. I yelled out loud and so began my hunt for this galley. And here we are today to talk about it. Your latest book. Thank goodness it's here. I feel like I've been waiting so long because I just love The Wanderers so much. And I'm so glad the book is here. If you would, please tell our listeners about They're Going to Love You. Well, thank you so much for that. And I'm thrilled that you liked both books because it can be a thing. If you love a book by an author and a new one comes in, you can be a bit, you know, nervous. Well, it hold up. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you liked the new one too. So They're Going to Love You is about a choreographer in her 40s who's living in Los Angeles and gets a call from her father's husband, letting her know that her father is dying. And we learn that Carlisle and her father have been estranged for 19 years. And this phone call sets off really two timelines. One timeline is Carlisle in her 40s, making the decision to see her father and all that that entails. And then the other timeline is Carlisle going back and reviewing this long relationship she's had with both men, both her father and her father's partner, who becomes his husband. And that timeline starts in the 80s in New York City. And we see these timelines converge until we find out what is this thing that split the family apart and how will they find their way back to each other? For me, watching those two timelines converge, as you say, was an absolute page turner. I flew through the book and I love what Jamie Attenberg says about they're going to love you. She says they're going to love you is my idea of a perfect book. It's about art, life, death, love, and family, and it is beautifully and sharply written. I cried several times while reading it and was sorry to let it go when I was done. And to be very honest, I will listen 
to anything best-selling author Jamie Attenberg has to say. Right? <laughs> Can you believe that? I don't even know her. How kind is that? <laughs> I mean, kind and honest and truthful, all of those things. And there were certain things we spoke earlier before we recorded that there were several parts in the book, which I will not share with readers. I'll let you find that on your own, that I cried during the book. And the timeline for the 80s really brought me back to that time period in New York City. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But talk about the inspiration for They're Going to Love You. Was there a germ of an idea while you were finishing up The Wanderers? And I, by the way, I love the Cranes dance. So because you kind of go back to ballet in that, was there, did you feel like it was time to go back to that? Or where does the They're Going to Love You fall in that timeline? It really started with the family story. And I didn't intend on setting them in the world of ballet or making the characters ballet dancers at all, because like you said, with my novel, The Crane Stance, I had visited that world and I didn't want to repeat that. So it was, I had the idea for this complicated kind of love quadrangle, really. And I was interested in exploring how betrayal isn't as clean as it's sometimes represented. Like this is a case where everyone does something a little bit wrong. Nobody's coming out of this with a perfect, clean slate. And then it's about how people just can't kind of get over themselves and how their mistakes attach to other things in their lives and their identities, which I think is more representative, more representative of how we behave in real life. Um, so I had that, I had this complicated story in mind and, and just for a long time, it was a plot in search of characters. I wasn't sure how to tell it or who to give this story to. And it really wasn't until pandemic. Um, and I started watching a lot of ballet because as we're all, you know, shut inside our houses or apartments and uh, slowly rotating around and I live alone too. So I, I felt really isolated and I was just watching a lot of dance and feeling really moved by the sight of these American artists who were, you know, t- giving themselves class in their kitchen and American arts institutions having to beg us to support them as they tried to struggle through the pandemic. And I thought the arts is the culture that I grew up in. It's what I think is important. But do we get to still care about the arts in these cataclysmic times? And I hope so. And so that these sort of things kind of came together for me. And I thought, well, I think the story is these artists' stories. And there's maybe a way within this complicated family dynamic to say something about what it means to be an artist in America, what it means to be a woman artist in America, and the kinds of relevance that you're always fighting for kind of dovetails the relevance as an artist and a relevance as a family member, like trying to say, this is my voice. This is what it's important to me. So that's a long winded way of saying (laughs) So a lot of things came together. (laughs) Everything I dreamed of. (laughs) (laughs) It's everything I've dreamed of hearing when you are writing and now the ballet converges with the family. Did Carlisle come first? Was it the mom, the dad? Who shows up for you first? Carlisle showed up first. And definitely, it always takes me a long time to start a book. Once I get started, then I move pretty quickly. But I end up usually writing the first chapter for about four months, just because I'm thinking through the whole thing as I try to 
find the voice and find the right way to get into the book. So I had her in my head. And once she emerged, then everyone kind of fell into place. And I was interested in a late in life coming of age. I mean, we see in the earlier timeline, a sort of more typical young woman in her adolescence turning into 20s coming of age. But I think coming of age happens again and again throughout our lives. I mean, as a woman, I just turned 50 and I feel like I'm coming of age in ways. It never ends. We're constantly doing it. And I think that's why it resonates with so many people. That perspective of you can come of age at any time. You get these epiphanies that occur, but you couldn't have had them in your 20s when you're in your 50s. Absolutely. You learn to understand your mother at several points in your life, right? And how you are as a daughter changes and brings its own revelations. I don't know when that ends, but it doesn't feel like it's going to be anytime soon. (laughs) All I can tell you is I keep my hair colored, so no one will know. (laughs) With respect to the title, did the title sort of hit you during pandemic? Was it something you were talking to your editors about? Did you have other choices? I always have a working title that makes no sense to anyone but me or is sort of... (laughs) I mean, when I was writing The Wanderers, which was a really long, complicated process with that book. But the title for a long time was That Which Is Almost Certainly Doomed to Publication. <laughs> it was my, my check. And then at one point it became check, check off in space was my, was the joke title. Um, for this one, I didn't have a joke title, but I was calling it Birds of America. For its entire life, which I knew I wouldn't be able to use because it's a Laurie Moore story collection, famously, as well as the James Audubon. But there are a lot of bird names within the book. And dancers are often referred to as being like birds. There's the famous. And then Firebird appears throughout the book. And then there's this very true anecdote towards the end of the book about a ballet that George Balanchine was going to make called Birds of America. And so to me, it seemed like this preposterous thing, these birds of America, which are ballet in America and this family. And so it was all seemed perfect. And then I had the talk with my agent about how we absolutely could not use that title and would have to be something else. And so that sent us both on a search through the book, you know, you're trying to pull out phrases or think creatively. And then we're we're talking and she has this lovely English accent, my agent. So everything she says sounds pretty good, Beautiful, you know? Right. Yes. And she's what about they're going to love you. Said, well, that sounds good. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> yes. It, it seems of course, a kind of a cliche, mm-hmm. but I like that it's both a sort of promise and a little bit of a threat. There's something a little menacing about that title. So well, it works. It's funny what do you think? Yeah. I think that there are two ways. There's probably more than a few ways you can actually say the title. Yes. Right? And I think the inflection changes differently as you say it. And I remember when I first got the galley, I I read it and I thought, well, wait a minute, which are they really? Or is this like, is this, sar- I don't know what I'm reading here. Sarcasm? Is it, is it irony? Is it, did you feel that was the one? Yes. Uh, yes. There was a little back and forth. My editor at Double J is very smart. And she loved the Bank Street setting. And there was a while with, we were talking about trying to incorporate that in the title. But in the end, you know, you fall in love with these things and then it feels like, oh, 
it's like changing your pet's name halfway through or so you can't do that like that's your pet's name you're stuck with it so at a certain point it just that had to be the title and we are grateful listeners and readers are grateful for that i mentioned multiple times how much i love the wanderers and your character development in that book is remarkable and i'm just quickly going to mention a sentence in the wanderers that i flagged because when i was reading they're going to love you I went right back and grabbed the Wanderers and looked at my stickies to see what sentence I was thinking of. And it comes late and it's from Helen. And she says, it is amusing that you can live your life in an almost entirely selfish way and still have little conception of yourself. Mm. And I thought that could fit so easily into their going to love you. It just made me think a couple of things. First, very selfishly, yes, I'm back reading a Macquarie book. (laughs) And then thinking about how that would apply to certain characters in the story, um, and quite a few of them, actually. What does Jamie Attenberg says? She calls it sharply written. And that's everything. Both books do that. The Cranes Dance, all of them do that. Where does a sentence like that come from for you? It's funny. When I write, I usually do it at home because I act everything out so broadly while I'm I'm writing. But there's something about slipping into a character. And I love that you found that sort of connection between Helen and Carlisle in a way. But I love finding like the most honest a character can be and letting that come out and honing that into a sentence. And so I love these uh, female characters, particularly in my books, like both the character of Madoka and Helen in The Wanderers and Carlisle here are just laceratingly honest sometimes with what's going on. And whenever that comes out, I feel satisfaction, even if their honesty is quite different from my own. The act of being honest feels really cathartic for me, even if it's not my truth. (laughs) But I think that we connect on different levels too. And I certainly connected with all three of those, you know, when I'm writing them, I am them in a way. So their honesty is as freeing for me. Does it ever give you pause and you say, oh, wow, that's really honest. Like, oh my goodness. I don't know what the other character is going <laughs> to respond to that when she says this, you know, because I think now you're really jousting with each other. And I yes. what that's like for you to, to do that. Oh, well, that's super exciting because then the room is really hot and everyone's hair is on fire at that moment. And those scenes are really fun. And then it's just how quickly can my fingers keep up with what the scene is doing? Yeah, those those are fun. Kirkus said that production companies should take note. We need a fully choreographed miniseries on a major streaming service as soon as possible. <laughs> yes. Yeah, call, get on the phone. Right. I mean, that would be my wish list, a serialized version of they're going to love you. I mean, I could see it happening. I mean, with you as the showrunner, I can't see <laughs> I can't it can't lose. Uh, wouldn't that be great? It would be great. And yeah. to see Bang Street on the screen, um, on the big screen, to see Carlisle walking around the village in the eighties, you know, I'd love to see the house where Robert and James live. And those scenes actually made me nostalgic from my college years in Manhattan back in the day because the city was my campus. And for me as a college student, it didn't get any better than that. I really understood Carlisle watching her in the city in the place where she feels most alive, most seen, most present in her life. It's stunning what you did there. Mm, Thank you. Um, I don't know when you were in New York, 
I arrived in 88, I guess. And I lived there for 17 years. But I was a young teenager when I got to New York. And it was really fun to revisit mentally those early years and what the city meant to me and what it felt like to move around it. And I had friends that lived in the West Village, not on Bank Street, but similar location, different apartment. But I also their apartment, like stepping into as a young person, the adult, sophisticated world of artists in New York and just thinking this is everything I want. I want to know this. I want to know what they know. I want to see what they've seen. I want their references. I want their taste, you know, (laughs) this, the sort of greedy young artist you can be and how exciting New York is at that time. It really made me reminisce that way, watching Carlisle do all of that. Are there any scenes you had to edit out? The book is so perfectly structured. I can't imagine anything that you left out on the cutting room floor. No, there's nothing. Nothing got cut. My editor pushed me to expand on a few scenes. So a few scenes got a little bigger and she was smart. She's a great editor because I tend to underwrite. Mm. Um, I tend to hold back sometimes because in my revision process, I am a merciless. If I can lose a sentence, I will. If I can lose a paragraph, fantastic. But sometimes I do too much. And so there were a couple of moments where she said, well, wait, I think we could know a little bit more about this or this, this scene could actually float a little longer because you've got it up on its feet really well. And, and I think we just want to hear a little more about what they're feeling in this moment. So she did have me write a little bit more into the book, but yeah. When you get that note, let's mm-hmm. expand on this. Depending on the scene, I suppose, is it something you're like, oh, yeah, I really didn't feel that was complete? Does it feel exciting to get back into that spot because you did want to expand? It's, you know, it's been a little different with each editor, and I've had a couple of different ones over, over my career. This, this was a new relationship for, for this book, and it was a really happy one. And I felt from the beginning she really got what I was trying to do and was like, I don't want to step on anything. Here are some ideas. What do you think? So we had a really good open back and forth. And I was excited to get notes back from her. I really, you know, also that was a product of pandemic and being so isolated. I was just dying for anyone to tell me something about this book. It was like I had a whole world in my head and nobody knew it. And I wanted people to know these characters. So I, I was just so excited to hear what she thought about the people and to talk about them. And I've had experiences before where, you know, an editor has said something and I've just stared at the computer for half an hour, like, no, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do that. But this was always like, oh, okay, great. I think I can do that. I think I know what she means. I agree. I love it when an editor snags on that little suspicion you had that you brushed over for a couple of drafts. Like, I don't think that's quite working, but I'm going to go right past it. And they sort of raise their hand and go, no, you were right. There is a little something here. Take the time to figure it out. That's great. That connection that you guys have exists. It's it's fascinating to me. Uh, Mm. I can't imagine you ever underwriting anything. <laughs> I really can't. I'm an example of that at some point in my life, but I don't, I don't see that. And I mean, anything that each book is just so beautiful. And there are sentences in this book that I 
more than I have time to recite. I mean, there's so many favorites, but this one really made me, I hate to say it, it made me laugh out loud. The ghoulish self-importance I've seen in other people at hospitals or even funerals, where there's always one person who has appointed themselves chief handler of crisis or most important mourner. (laughs) We know them. Yes, we do. (laughs) We know them at every event. There's that. There's that person. And that is just so perfect, that sentence. And I thought, oh, I got to know who she (laughs) is. I mean, I love when I read a sentence and I feel so grateful to have someone explain, you know, that feeling that you have that someone gives you a sentence and you're like, aha, great. I will remember that sentence because I have that sensation for so long. And I feel that when I land on something for myself, I'm like, oh, thank goodness I can explain that to myself because... Because the chief handler of crisis has been bugging me for 30 years, and now I have a sentence for them. (laughs) And then, of course, because the book is about forgiveness and family struggles and these complicated family relationships, which we all have, even if we don't think we don't, right? We'll look at our family and say, well, we're not as bad as that. But I don't know. There's a lot of nuance to everybody's family and on the subject of forgiveness you have a parent doesn't get to hold a grudge. A parent's job is to be forgiving. Boy, is that spot on. Just a beautiful sentence. And then one last one I'm going to throw in. Emotions have a way of collecting and hardening inside us like neglected grease. We are all smoking stoves. And so much of the book is wrapped up in that sentence. Yes, that's sort of a Thematic sentence for the book, I think. Unbelievable. You, to my great joy, narrated the audio version of the book. And to listen to you say those sentences was pretty incredible. Yes, I throughout this whole interview, I have been fangirling here. But I loved, <laughs> loved hearing you narrate the book. And I did watch an interview you did with Stephen Rowley, and you were both talking about narrating your own books. He wrote and narrated The Gunkle, which was mind-blowing. And the same with They're Going to Love You. Talk about narrating your own book. Did the publishing company approach you or did they float other names? They floated some names to me. I'm sure they were all great. And I said to my agent, I really actually love to do this myself. Do you think they would let me audition? And so she went back to them and I did voiceovers like 25 years ago in New York. Okay. So I still had a reel of me plugging like Charmin and Tampax and life insurance, or whatever. But, you know, commercials haven't changed. So um, was this on the radio or was like- yeah, yeah, radio commercials. So we sent that and they said, oh, you know, actually she sounds good and she has some range. So they said yes. And I was thrilled. And then I haunted some audiobook narrators. Mm-hmm. And just to see tips, tricks, I talked to Stephen because we're buddies and said, how'd you do yours? Because the gunkle is such a great, you know, he did such a fabulous job with the audiobook. And then I went into the booth, my notes and my preparations of how it was all going to go and the different voices I had thought of for the characters. And it was so cool. It was really interesting. I mean, you're in this little box and... You can't see anyone. The director's in your headphones. You can't see the guy sitting, the engineer, because he's out of view. And you're just giving this full performance of your book to no one. It's so private and interesting. And I was conscious of really wanting to do well, to get it right. I mean, of course, I'm familiar with the story. And the last thing I do before turning in a book is read the whole book out loud. 
to myself, just if you can't say the sentence easily, then probably your grammar's wrong so or something's wrong. So I had already said everything, but to do it all in one took like two and a half days, almost three days to do. And I was really glad because the book had been with my publishing house at that point for almost a year. And so it had been away from me for a little bit. And I wanted one last dinner and drinks with it, sort of, before I could say goodbye. So I wanted to have all the emotions of the book one more time before letting go. And did that happen? Did you feel all those things come back to you? It did. It did. I loved the characters in the way that I had loved them when I was writing them. And, you know, I could, of course, see how complicated and flawed they were, but I was so on their sides. And so voicing them, I felt even more on their side because I was, I guess they were really in my body at that point. But I felt a different kind of compassion toward the mom, toward Isabel, Carlisle's mom, while reading her out loud. For some reason, I I understood her a little bit better. And that was going to be my question. Was there one character that changed your own perspective? And I'm I'm thrilled to hear it was Isabel. She's that's There are things in the book that I didn't quite realize were there. Mm -hmm. And I felt a real sense of compassion for her as a mother and what it would have felt like. I could see, especially in the early scenes where Isabel, we learn in the book for your listeners, Carlo ends up being six foot two, which is very tall as a woman, but certainly for ballet. And she talks about being raised by her mother, who was a professional dancer with New York City Ballet, and how her mother wasn't very supportive of Carlisle's dance training. And I could just see her mother looking at this girl that she knows is going to be too tall for dance, not wanting to crush her dreams, but what is she going to say? She knows this world really well, and she knows what it's going to do to her daughter. And the kind of struggle that she would have had, I, I felt quite a lot of love for that character. As you're reading and narrating your book, did you have any moments where you thought, oh gosh, I I should have added to this part or, oh, I shouldn't have put that in? Or did you (laughs) want to self-edit as you were reading? Sometimes, yes. For the most part, I was okay. I mean, I go over my sentences so often that at that point in the book, I was happy with the sentences. But yeah, there were a couple little moments where I thought, oh, did I get that quite right? And then once I was surprised, when I got to the section in Mexico, I won't say more about it, mm-hmm. that seemed to me even more fun. I thought, oh, that actually works really, yeah, <laughs> works really well. And then a lot of the book sort of stru- structured musically, because I was thinking about the book as a kind of ballet or as a piece of music. And reading it out loud for long periods of time, I could hear the musical structure of the book in ways that I was pleased with. So I felt good about that. But of course, there's always sentences that you think, oh, I'd like maybe one more go at that one. (laughs) And I found a typo too. There's always one in every book. There's a typo. Which was, did you have to stop production at that moment? We did, yes. I said, wait, am I, is this, no, call double day. <laughs> at once. Yeah. Um, do you think you would do it again? Yes. In fact, I was like, wait, could I do this? I want to do this for other books. It's so fun. It's probably quite a different experience doing books that are not your own. But yes, now I'm hooked. Now I really want to do it. Although, of course, like The Wanderers, I'm really glad we had Mojan Marno. Yes. Because uh, that book has like, mm-hmm. it has a lot of accents and genders and 
cultures. And I did do a, like an audio sample for them of all the science words because there's a lot of kind of astronomy words in there. But that needed someone really great, professional, you know, better better skills than me. Than you. <laughs> so yes, if it's the right book, I'd love to do it again. As you've been touring and people have been talking to you about the book, is there one theme that one is it a character? Is it a scene? Is it something that reoccurs when people have a conversation with you about the book? I've heard from a lot of people that they started off feeling on sort of one side of this betrayal that happens and mm-hmm. found their allegiances shifting a bit, which is super gratifying yeah, for me to hear. And then I've heard a lot of mothers say that a lot of the parental stuff really resonated with them. Thus, this idea of the imperfect parent, both having one and being one, that comes up for a lot of people. Also, um, you know, as we have aging parents and the issues around the feelings that you have as you're letting a parent go has come up for a lot of people. So it's very exciting as an author when people say that the book brought up things in their own life. That's a deeply gratifying moment, you know. As evidenced by almost every single sentence in the book that I am trying not to repeat, (laughs) (laughs) trying to spoil for anyone. As you continue on this lovely book tour for They're Going to Love You, where can readers find you for your upcoming events? I'm on Instagram at Meg Howery. I'm on Twitter still until Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm un- where the whole yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I'm an unverified person on Twitter at Meg Howery. And then I have uh, my website, which I need to update more thoroughly, but www.meghowery.com. And before, see, listen to that, listen to that narrative voice you had there. It was beautiful. It was lovely. Uh, before I let you go, any recommendations that you would like to share with listeners? Ah, great. I have been on a little bit of a research jag for my new book, the book I'm working on. Yes, the book I'm working Yay, on now. Which... I was getting to that question. Please feel free to share that whenever you like. Um, let me think of what I've been reading and loving lately. Uh, How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water. Have you read that book? Oh, it's so good, right? It's like a monologue. It's like a being in a, at a great piece of theater. And Elizabeth McCracken's new book, The Hero of This Book. Wasn't that remarkable? It's so good. It's so interesting and good. And I gave that as a Christmas present to a dear friend. And I've been recommending that book a lot to people. Those are two that are really standing out to me now. Although the book I'm plugging, and this is an outlier, but the actor Ethan Hawke wrote a novel last year called A Bright Ray of Darkness. And I have to say, if you're an audiobook person, get that book. It's a really good book. And I'm, of course, pro people who have done other things becoming writers. Some people are a little bit snarky about, oh, it's Ethan Hawke. He's a famous actor. Why would he write a novel? But he's a really good novelist. And the audiobook is fabulous. Does he narrate? He narrates, yeah. And he just performs the heck out of it. And it's so, it's really funny and very moving. So I missed that. So I will definitely be looking into that. And since you gave us a little bit of a hint that you are working on something new, I just have to stay in my seat while I ask this question. (laughs) 
<laughs> Anything you can share about it? I'm always so grateful to the discretion of the Los Angeles Public Library librarians who never bat an eye as I pick up <laughs> the strangest stack of books for them throughout the process. So I just got, I just got a notice from them that I have, among other things, a book about psilocybin mushrooms, a book about becoming a nun, and a book about Alzheimer's. So those are all things that I'm reading for the new book, but I can't say anything more than I that. I am here <laughs> for any single thing. I'll read your grocery list. Let's put it that way. I know people say that a lot, but I really would read your grocery list. <laughs> Just narrate it for me. <laughs> Excellent. A pack Thank of Charmin, you. please. A pack of <laughs> I will share all the links on the podcast page for this episode for all of the titles that Meg just shared with us. Today's book, They're Going to Love You by today's guest, the wonderful Meg Howery, is on shelves everywhere. So please grab a copy at your local library or your local independent bookstore. They're Going to Love You is published by Double Day Books. Meg Howery, thank you. Really, thank you so much. I hope you will come back for whatever comes next. Oh, yes, I will. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thank you. Wonderful listeners. As always, I thank all of you for joining me today. Remember to follow Top Shelf at Merrick Library on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find most podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library, check out our website at merricklibrary.org. Special thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chosmier, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your top shelf.